Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Do our local police departments have a culture problem? We'll discuss that in a moment with my panel of journalists, and that means KUOW's police and courts reporter, Amy Radel. Hi, Amy. Hi there. Welcome back to the show. Seattle Times senior investigative reporter. Welcome back, Patrick Malone. Hi, Bill. KUOW online editor and producer, Dyer Oxley. Hi, Dyer. Good noon. Good noon to you, sir. And good noon to all those watching on YouTube as we stream the show. Uh, Let's uh, begin with the Federal Aviation Administration this morning announcing that it will take immediate action to increase its oversight of manufacturing at the Boeing Company. I'm sure you all know a fuselage panel broke away in midair on an Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9 last Friday out of Portland. Seattle Times aviation reporter Dominic Gates told KUOW's Daily News podcast Seattle Now that Gates had spoken with someone representing a mother and a teenager who were sitting in that plane in the row ahead of where the hole opened up. It was absolutely terrifying for both of them. The The 15-year-old had his shirt ripped off. His seat was twisted back towards the hole. And they're very emotionally distraught. People would have been worried not only about getting sucked out and lack of air, but also like thinking, is the plane going to crash? So it's incredibly fortunate that this didn't happen further up It was only halfway towards its cruise altitude. It was at 16,000 feet. If it had happened higher up, people would have unbuckled their seatbelts, perhaps been walking around. The flight attendants would have been coming down with snacks or whatever. It could have been a much worse tragedy. So, panel, do you have any reaction before we discuss the investigation? Any reaction to what you just heard and what happened this week? Um, Well, that story, the interview with the mother and son really changed my perception of what happened because I felt like the video that we initially saw was like everyone was buckled in and had their oxygen masks on. It was very quiet, very static, you know, so you're kind of like, okay. And then you hear this story of this mother hanging on to her kid and his clothes being sucked off. And it's like it really helped me understand more of what people really went through. Right. I'm just happy that all these airplane nightmares happened after I landed uh-huh. After spending time on an airplane, uh, it just makes me think of the Boeing has a bad reputation right now. I, and I think it's been a bad reputation for a few years. That makes me concerned about the local economic impacts to this very large company with a lot of employees. Um, I know that when I recently flew back into Seattle and I saw that it was an Airbus, I had a certain positive feeling when I saw that. So right. I think that I'm probably not alone in that. There's probably a lot of people out there like that. Yeah, and and as I said, the FAA is increasing its oversight of manufacturing at Boeing. New audits, FAA audits, are going to involve the the, the 737-9 MAX production line uh, and suppliers and compliance quality. So you're talking about, you know, local impact. The FAA is considering moving Boeing's quality controls under an independent third party. And, Patrick, you were telling me the FAA may uh, have, you know, an increasing role in this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that even the FAA is coming under its own measure of scrutiny uh, related to this, as we we're hearing from Senator Maria Cantwell's office yesterday, who called into question, how closely is the FAA monitoring things at this point? Because it's only been a few years since uh, Boeing caused a real disruption to air travel globally. 
with the problems with, with that they had with international flights a couple of years ago. So they've really done a lot at Boeing to sort of damage confidence in commercial air travel. But I think at this point, what the FAA is focused on is who is responsible, you know, for this particular new problem. And that could be Boeing or it could be Spirit Aerosystems in Wichita, Kansas, who sort of manufactures the panel in question as a component to fuselage for Boeing aircraft. Um, this week, Boeing's own CEO said the company was, and I quote this, acknowledging our mistake, but then he didn't elaborate on what he was referring to. So was their mistake to not adequately inspect a product that came to them? Or was there work done at Boeing maybe that compromised the integrity of this panel? I think that uh, we're, we're going to know a lot more once the FAA gets to the bottom of some of these really important questions. But the one thing that is clear is that this has been highly disruptive to air travel and consumer trust in it. Yeah, there's something about door plug bolts that that is like I didn't stop flying after the the two Max Eight crashes a few years ago. In the that started with a design flaw, and I figured, well, the flight control software is probably fixed. But how do you make sure every bolt installer and every bolt inspector involving a handoff between Spirit and Boeing? You know the how do you know everyone's going to do their job right every time? Apparently, we don't know that. We don't even know that these door plug bolts were even installed. That's one of the big questions is, were they even present when this component arrived from Wichita? Or, you know, one thing that Dominic Gates was able to confirm and report this week was that uh, at the Renton site, Boeing did not remove this panel. So, you know... The question becomes, were there loose bolts? Were there no bolts? And was that due to actions in Wichita or steps that weren't taken in Renton? We also learned this week that this airplane's pressurization warning light came on on three different flights in recent weeks. And Alaska Airlines' response was to stop using the plane for long flights over water, but to keep using it on routes like Portland to Ontario, California. Now, we don't know whether that warning light was related to this blown door plug. And Alaska says that restricting this plane to, to overland flights was according, that's done, that's, that's FAA uh, policy. <laughs> Just doesn't make me feel safer. And that kind of moves the story back to Alaska because I feel like we we had kind of said, okay, this is about Boeing. That's where our focus is. But actually, yeah, that just that chain of decision making is a reason to keep that on our radar too. Right. Yeah, it, it brings to mind the other big company in town here, Alaska Airlines, also had bad press back in the fall for something completely different. It was a little more, uh, a little more out there with someone trying to open a door intentionally in that case. Yeah, um, And then we pivot to this with something completely being blown out without any intention. But the fact that that light went on three times raised an alert light with me, at least, that maybe there is something going on over it with Alaska that they could also be putting a little more oversight into their policies as well. I think that most people would be shocked if they look at the waivers that uh, various companies get, both for their manufacturing and some of these I'm referring specifically to defense contractors who have spent a lot of time covering. But also, when we look at uh, folks like commercial air travel. There are a lot of waivers related to this. There are a lot of ways that the FAA says, okay, we can find an acceptable workaround to this problem that we think is safe enough. And I actually had a conversation with Dominic Gates about this decision not to fly this plane. For instance, you would not be getting on a MAX 9 to go to Hawaii 
because they don't want it over water. Right. And uh, the reason being, there are a ton of places that you can safely land a plane over land that you can't over water. So, you know, this is the type of thing that happens a lot more commonly than people think, where the FAA says, okay, we've identified a problem. We don't know the root of it and we don't know the scope of it yet, but we feel like we can still safely keep aircraft, you know, operating in this country and keeping everything on schedule by making some workarounds. And these are way more common than people think. But I think that the wake up call in all of this is sure they're wallpaper for the regulators who see them all the time, but us average consumers and, and folks who, you know, maybe use air travel don't always know what waivers we're flying under or what uh, sort of workarounds or little problems we've got, especially if there hasn't been a hole blown in the side of a jet. It keeps bringing me back, and I think to especially anyone who's lived here a long time, as I have, is is what's. And by the way, my wife works at Boeing, but but this, and my father worked at Boeing, and my sister worked at Boeing. You know, I, I full transparency, in federal way, yeah, full transparency. Everybody, I'm my f- best friend's dad worked for Boeing, right? And and I have the from from, and I'm no expert. It's just you know, I read and hear the same stuff that that you all do. And and we get the impression that Boeing was a was an engineering company was was with the highest standards, safety standards, quality standards, and and now they're driven by profits and shareholders, and their their planes are they, they seem like they're more dangerous for systemic reasons. Uh, and we talked to uh, Seattle now spoke to Dominic Gates of the Seattle Times. About this, about he Gates referred to the McDonnell Douglas merger twenty five years ago. Now, bringing a more profit focused approach to the company. What is one of the most damaging things that has happened over the last twenty years that I've been covering Boeing is the way top executives have alienated the workforce here. They have constantly, every time there's, they brought out a new airplane, starting with the 787, but including right up to the max. Every time they brought a new one, they They've threatened to do, do the work elsewhere. They've threatened the people here to take the work away. They've outsourced work all over the place. They've set up a new assembly plant on the East Coast. They have, for 20 years, been telling the people here that they're replaceable. And I think that's been very damaging to the company. Very damaging in that it's the people here that build them and design them that have created that historical legacy. That was the Seattle Times' Dominic Gates speaking on Seattle Now. I've, I've been I've been reading this press coverage, and I see um, I see stories like, "Would you carry a small child on your lap on a, a Boeing or any other plane?" You know, the regulators tell you to buy a seat for your infant, and a lot of us don't do that. That's a hassle. That's an expense. But these are the kind of things we that we think about now. I would add one more caveat with. Uh to add to Dominic's remarks about, you know, what may have changed culturally at Boeing from, from what it was when you were a kid. Right. And I think about things like citizens United. And I think about the influence that corporations, especially ones that the government and that society are highly reliant on. And in many ways, from a regulatory perspective, we've seen dozens of examples how they're sort of writing their own rules. It's a self-policing sort of arrangement where, you know, basically the government is held captive by its contractors. And Boeing 
is not only instrumental in defense contracting, but it's also one of only two of these really large commercial airline manufacturers. And so they have a lot of sway. And we saw examples of that with the Max 8 investigation about how the FAA had been kind of pushed around by Boeing. And I think that we can't ignore the aspect of this that uh, where the power dynamics shifted from contractors working for the government or working for their commercial customers to being absolutely so large, too big to fail, to where we have to accept in many cases, or regulators often accept in many cases, their preferences in terms of how harshly they're going to be graded on the quality of their work. But one thing that gives me a little optimism in this case is it seems really specific that it was someone's job to bolt that door cover on. And with the last stories that you covered, those systems were so complex, you know, and trying to figure out where they went wrong. And it was really technical and a little more diffuse. And this time I'm like, well, even I can get my brain around this problem and, you know, surely we can narrow it down. But then the solutions, whether it's to have the more independent oversight or something, that'll be the question. Right. Well, I hope the other thing that gives me optimism is that Amtrak is still running (laughs) between Seattle and Portland, which is the key. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, All right. Well, we'll know. We may address this again uh, next week. I don't know if we'll know more substantial, you know, in a a week or whether we're talking about a long, long time before we learn anything more about uh, about what happened. I would mark my calendar for two years from next week. Yeah. Yeah. Better. Uh, that's Patrick Malone from the Seattle Times. We have KOW's Amy Radel here, KOW's Dyer Oxley, and we're going to take a short break and come back. Uh, don't go away, folks uh, listening, folks watching on YouTube. We will continue with the Week in Review in just a moment. You are getting caught up on the week gone by on KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke here with KUOW's Dyer Oxley and Amy Radel and the Seattle Times' Patrick Malone about an hour ago, we learned that the U.S. Attorney's Office is reviewing the state's case against three Tacoma police officers acquitted last month on charges of murdering a man named Manuel Ellis. Patrick, you have been covering this case for the Seattle Times. Um, why would the U.S. Attorney's Office get involved? Well, I think because first to, to preface that question just a little bit, there are a couple of different aspects of this and the trial that just finished was state charges against three police officers. And I think that, you know, that part of it has come and gone. But there's still a potential for federal charges against these officers. And perhaps even more importantly, to look at the systems that were involved, beginning with the investigation of this by the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, which investigated these Tacoma officers. And then, you know, the actions of the court, quite honestly, uh, what happened in Pierce County during this trial. There were There was a lot of objection from the Ellis family and its supporters about rulings by this judge, uh, his shutting down any conversation about the poor quality of the investigation by the Pierce County Sheriff's Department. Maybe we should remind listeners who aren't up to speed on on what, you know, a thumbnail of what happened that night, because that leads us into some of the, uh, you know, uh, conflicting stories and causes. March 3rd, 2020, intersection in the south edge of Tacoma. Two police officers from the Tacoma Police Department observed Manuel Ellis uh, allegedly trying to reach for the door handle of a car as it passed through the intersection. That car didn't stop. It kept going. These officers say that they tried to question Ellis about it and that he turned aggressive towards them. Uh, Eyewitnesses showed up pretty early in the interaction. 
Some of them video recorded it. And uh, their perception was it was the officers who were aggressive. In the end, Mr. Ellis died that night. The Pierce County Medical Examiner ruled it a homicide uh, caused by uh, oxygen deprivation from physical restraint. Three Tacoma police officers were charged, went on trial late last year and just last month were all three acquitted of charges of murder and manslaughter. So uh, in terms of these officers' involvement, in terms of uh, as far as state charges, that's not going to happen again. They have been tried and they have been acquitted by a Tacoma jury. However, there is still room to look into things like, was Mr. Ellis's civil rights violated? Uh, were his civil rights honored in the way that the Pierce County Sheriff's Department handled its investigation? Did the Washington State Patrol, when it took over that investigation, uh, you know, live up to all the constitutional requirements that they were expected to do? And I think that we're going to kind of get sort of a full spectrum look here. So I think that it'd be very easy for someone maybe unfamiliar with the case to say, there's been a trial. This is over. Um, and in some people's minds, it may be. But I think that this goes beyond the actions of the three officers that night and would be more focused on sort of the systemic actions beginning with the investigation all the way through the trial. Yeah, and I Patrick, think... to be clear. Oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead Amy. No, go ahead. Well, I'm just the, the charges that you said could be potential. Now, these are different charges than what we just saw in the case locally here, right? These are this is a different route the law can take. Correct. These would be federal charges if there were any. And you know, it, the statement that came from the US Attorney's office was frankly pretty vague. It didn't get into whether it's going to look hard at the individual actions of these officers. It basically says it's going to review the case that was assembled by the by the uh, Washington Attorney General's office. And so, you know, federal charges, just like we saw in the George Floyd case, we saw uh, Officer Chauvin was convicted by a state court, but then he was tried by a federal court and convicted there, too. Uh, we've seen these officers acquitted. There's still a possibility of federal charges, but, you know, the sense that I got and and maybe it's just my reading of it, because once again, I would love some clarity from the U.S. Attorney's Office on scope here. They were super vague, grateful that they announced it's even happening. But I would like some more detail because is this going to be focused on these officers? Is there a likelihood of federal charges against them? Or is this mainly going to be looking at the systems and maybe where they succeeded and failed throughout this process? Yeah. So today we just have confirmation from the U.S. Attorney's Office here that they are reviewing the case, which the family had called for after the officers were acquitted. So uh, that's just, yeah, as you said, one step forward. But I think we're really in an intense back and forth about the meaning of this case right now because, you know, the Seattle Times editorial board called for a federal investigation. You know, they felt like justice was not served by the trial. And then uh, today in the Tacoma News Tribune, Wayne Fricke, one of the attorneys representing one of the officers, officers has his own very, you know, strong pushback, blaming the media, saying that, you know, we referred to the killing of Manuel Ellis when that had not been proven in court yet, um, defending the officers. And then at the very end, he says, you know, I only wish that the officers had been equipped with body cameras that night because he says, I don't think we would be here right now if that were the case. And I think that's something everyone could agree with. I think the family wishes that there were, you know, dash cams and body cams in place to show exactly how the encounter started. Why weren't there? Uh, the, the department didn't have that. that. Yeah, right. Uh, they had been approved, but not yet brought, uh, implemented. So this was something that was on its way to the Tacoma Police Department at the time of Manuel Ellis's death. City Council had said, yes, 
we're going to equip, start equipping officers with these. But uh, there was insufficient funding. There was a delay. And that's happened since then or now? Since then, yes. Within a year, actually, within 2020, they did begin using – started with just a handful of officers. But now they all wear them at Tacoma PD. Okay. I also want to discuss the fact that this is the first cop trial since Washington uh, got a law that makes it easier to bring criminal charges for an officer misusing deadly force. Um, I'm not sure the trial would have happened without that law. These officers were acquitted. Did the law work as intended? Um, Well, I've talked to people who say this wasn't the ideal test case for that law because it's really focused on officers' decisions to use deadly force and misuse of deadly force. And in this case, the jury was, you know, having to determine whether the officers, in fact, caused his death. They said they didn't, that he died of uh, enlarged heart and methamphetamine in his system, right? So it wasn't a clear cut, whereas in the next case that we're going to see tried in King County, um, Auburn police officer Jeff Nelson is charged uh, in the killing of Jesse Saray, and it was a shooting. He did use deadly force, so I get the sense that people feel like that might be, um, a, you know, a very different landscape to look at officers' use of deadly force and whether they are being charged and prosecuted for that now under this new standard. Yeah, I mean, accountability can take a lot of forms, really, and charging an officer is is one. Because it really fostered a conversation that we hadn't had about police deaths in Washington state to that point. And uh, so I-940, a lot of people could look at it as I-940 flopped because these officers weren't convicted. I don't see it that way. I think that uh, it's our job, you know, as journalists to kind of foster a debate around the government and the kind of quality of the work it's doing. And I think that I-940 actually promotes that. And we would not know the things that we know about uh, the way police investigate police, for instance, or, you know, or, uh, you know, the way that uh, firefighters testify in a very friendly way about police. You know, we're, we're learning a lot of things about systems, about cultures inside the government and inside first responders that I think are a direct result of I-940. And there might be some who reasonably believe that the verdict in the Tacoma officer's trial will have a really chilling effect on charging police officers. But I would caution against judging the effectiveness of this law based on any single case, because uh, I think it's going to look a lot different 30 years from now, both in practice and on paper than it does today. I think we're still learning about gaps in it, for instance. Um, And so there's much to learn, but I do think that we finally had a full-throated conversation about the death of Manuel Ellis, and we wouldn't have without I-940. Well, don't officers, some officers say if the state doesn't have to prove uh, that officers acted with actual malice, then people are not going to want to become officers and get convicted for making a mistake or making a tough, well-meaning choice in the moment. Is that is that the, the case? Well, that, that certainly came up even in the arguments during the trial. You know, uh, one of the defense lawyers basically issued a plea to jurors during his opening statement that, like, remember, these people have given 13 years of their lives to you, first in the military and then then here. And uh, uh, that that kind of that is uh, disrespectful of Initiative 940 that 60 percent of voters passed here, which said, no, this, this is what people want. You know, it was passed by the voters. It was passed by the legislature. And it's more in line with other states now. Right. It is. It is. And and look, 
It does not mean officers are getting charged like crazy. You know, we, we've seen it twice since the new law. We've seen it six times in a century. So, you know, I, I think that that's a pretty hollow argument to say that, oh, they're just charging us left and right. And I think that probably what's going to really, you know, tell us what this law really accomplishes is once we've seen a handful of these things and what has the effect been and we're able to measure our deaths down, our deaths in police custody down. That's ultimately what this was about. And I think that that's going to take a lot of years to judge whether it has really had an impact on officers' behavior. Well, you, let's talk about you, – you, you used a phrase, Patrick, uh, we're learning about police culture. So let's talk about that. You know, the, the, when, we, when, when, the, when the media, we talk about police culture, we often are talking about a culture both aggressive, defensive – um, a culture of callousness that might lead to abuses. And in Seattle, that has meant deaths of suspects. It's meant videos of combative officers, belligerent crowd control tactics, a union official laughing while discussing an officer-caused death, a police break room in Seattle with a fake tombstone of a black teenager killed by police. Well, that does not paint a fair picture, according to the SPD's general counsel, Rebecca Boatwright. When we look at all of the work officers are doing under extremely strange circumstances right now, to broadly brush an entire department with one perspective of culture is it's, it's unfair and it's not accurate. So how should we talk about police culture? A federal judge is looking into police culture in Seattle right now. According to the city's inspector general for public safety, Lisa Judge says that when U.S. District Judge James Robart reads the next contract between Seattle and its police union, he's going to be looking for evidence that officers will be held accountable. I think that will be important information for the court to consider whether the desire and acceptance for robust oversight has really been baked in to the SPD culture. There's that word again, SPD culture. Amy, uh, let's talk about what we mean and how culture might change, because you reported that story on police culture for KUOW, part of a series about SPD that we're doing. Listeners can find that at KUOW.org slash Seattle Police. Amy, when the SPD's general counsel told you it's not fair or accurate to paint police culture so broadly, what did she mean? Yeah, and she wrote about this in a filing with the court that really delved pretty deep. And so I thought it was interesting to hear their kind of response because, yeah, whenever these incidents flare up, people kind of say, well, what's happening at SPD? What is it in their culture that would you know, lead them to have a Trump flag in the break room or, yeah. you know, these different examples? Basically, you know, one point that they made in response is culture is this word that kind of gets thrown around. There's really no definition to it. I mean, this is a thousand person organization. Um, so is there something intrinsic here that is leading to to these cases. Um, they said, if you want to define culture, let's look at some other indicators uh, like, uh, you know, the re- reduction in use of serious force across, you know, the past decade under the consent decree. Um, let's look at the feedback. The consent pub- decree being federal oversight after a pattern of, uh, of problems was found. Exactly. Exactly. Of unconstitutional uh, excessive force that started in 2012. Um, they said, you know, you could look at they have a there's a 911 texting uh, process that they 
use now where they kind of say, oh, so how, you know, if you call 911, you get a, a text from SPD and they ask you to kind of take a brief survey. And they said these surveys are overwhelmingly positive. Officers are out there day in, day out under, you know, really difficult staffing shortages, answering all of these calls. Like, why is our culture only defined by these, you know, handful of circumstance of controversies that the public is really upset about. And they said that not to diminish that those happen and that those are really damaging, but that's not the complete picture of the organization. And then they kind of in this court document, they go into the things that they say they are doing to try to address stress, which they say is one of the things that they are worried could fuel um, a negative culture. Well, I, I can see why people do paint them with a broad brush. And one reason is a reluctance to criticize the miscreants. When someone comes out and on tape devalues the life of someone who was killed by a Seattle police officer, and then you don't hear condemnation, but you hear excuses, you hear defenses. I look at the differences between, say, Tacoma Police Department's response to Manuel Ellis's death and Minneapolis Police Department's response to George Floyd's death. You had individual officers willing to testify against those officers. In Tacoma, you had officers who wouldn't even talk to investigators. So, you know, what we've seen here in Western Washington is a culture of coddling the cops who do the worst, most high-profile stuff, you know? And I think that that's why there's a broad brush here. And I get it. There are a lot of cops, and most cops, I will say, most cops go out, do their job very well every day, make people feel safe and protected. And where they fail is that they then defend the ones who don't, you know, and we've seen that time and time again here. And I get it. You know, they say, hey, we show up with compassion most of the time. Good. That's the bare minimum. That's what you're supposed to do. And of course, we're going to flag the times that they don't. Yeah, I just want to tie maybe two of those together because I I, I totally hear what you're saying. I know that there are many different corners to SPD. And I guess when I say that, I'm talking about the officers, you know, the Seattle Police Officers Guild, for example, not the upper management. But if we're just talking about those officers. I know that there are great ones. There, there are ones who, you know, that classic uh, situation, I'd like to have a beer with this candidate. You know, there are officers you'd like to have, a, you know, a beer with. I played pinball with them. So I know that they are there. However, you can't deny that Spog's leadership in recent years went from a president who was all about giving collectible comic books away to children so that they could, you know, increase literacy to leadership that carries the vibe of more like professional wrestlers. Right. And uh, that that kind of sets a tone for the officers. You know, you might know that there are some great ones there that uh, you can you can have your beer and play pinball with, but you also know that the leadership, the, the ones with the hands on the wheel, so to speak, are the ones who, who are really aggressive. And it, it does feel like instead of being that neighborhood cop that I think everybody wants, it, it feels like they're more like protecting their club. And um, that's where that broad brush comes from. Well, I, I agree that it's the the officers who can speak publicly. A lot of them are so removed from us as journalists, you know, so we can contact the guild. Um, you know, sometimes we get a comment from Mike Solon. Um, we can contact, you know, try to contact the chief. And then there's this sort of, you know, and I talk to some officers who say, well, I don't really have anything to do with the guild. Like, that doesn't speak for me. I, I'm not I'm not caught up in that. It's like, well, that's who the public hears from. We, you know, because we can hear those. They're allowed to speak and the leadership is allowed to speak. And a lot of times the rank and file are just kind of out of remove from us unfortunately yeah Amy, we, also- we i just want to, to to tell listeners they might want to know that we uh, for this show i reached out to 
the Seattle police chief and the deputy chief, and you know we tried to talk to other officers, and um, and and nobody wanted to come on this program. But 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 Amy, you're you you you're you, you're on this beat, and you talk to these officers. I hear you saying on the one hand that it's it's not fair to paint them with such a broad brush, but then you also said that that uh, the general counsel and I assume other officers you speak to do acknowledge. Uh, you said a stress that can cause I don't know whether they want to use the culture culture word or not, but that there's it's not that there's they're not denying that there's any problem, are they? Yeah, I think um and you had asked earlier, like have they acknowledged a problem in their culture ever, you know, like even when the consent decree started, I don't know. I think they we mostly kind of look back and look at how cultural norms have changed and say, Oh, look how far we've come. But at the time, you know, you know, the DOJ investigation was was resisted by a group of officers who tried to counter sue and everything. So mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the culture is shifting. Um but, uh, you know, from there, I think um, they do see – so they do they do say we are really worried right now because we are so short-staffed. People are doing all this mandatory overtime. They're going through a lot of traumatic calls and from call to call to call. And so right now they they are kind of saying we are concerned that that could erupt in, in bad ways for the officers and for the public. And that's why they are really trying to shore up an officer wellness program, which they say a lot of consent decrees around the country do have more of a focus focus on. Seattle's was so early, they were kind of lacking in that piece to say, if, if people don't have somewhere to go when they're under stress, that could exacerbate things. So they say that that's a big focus now is trying to is on prevention, especially given the strains that they're under with their staffing. I would have to Amy, say we're talking about culture a lot. And that seems to be the key issue here. But uh, through all your reporting on this, I'm wondering what the status is of another word that I feel should be coming up on the other side of the coin of this culture conversation, and that's accountability. I mean, where do you feel the status of accountability, particularly with SPD, is right now? We're about to find out. On uh, Patrick and I were just talking about there's a lot of timelines that are hitting this month um, with some of the highest profile cases. Um, so this month we're supposed to hear from the prosecutor's office on whether they uh, are going to refer any criminal charges or whether they're going to charge Kevin Dave. That's the police officer who struck and killed John V. Kandula, um just about a year ago. January 23rd is the anniversary of her death. In the um, crosswalk. Yes, exactly. Yeah. A pedestrian uh, in downtown Seattle. and. Like yeah, Officer Dave was speeding to a call, and and he struck her in a crosswalk, and she died. So, uh, so the results of that, they did an outside investigation, and they're going to decide criminal charges in his case. Um, and then we're also going to hear from the Office of Police Accountability about their the results of their investigation of Detective Daniel Otterer, the Guild Vice President, who made the body cam comments. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what which a lot- he said were taken out of context that he was having a. Private conversation, he thought, laughing with sardonic, so I don't remember his words, but sort of mm-hmm. dark, you know, dark humor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, so when you ask about the accountability side, I think the public tends to watch those specific cases. And uh, and incidentally, we're about to hear also about consequences for the Tacoma police officers um, who were just acquitted in terms of their discipline, their continued employment in Tacoma. So all this stuff is kind of like mm-hmm. converging right now. You know, when we talk about painting with a broad brush and some of the officers distancing themselves from the union and and its actions, you really can't distance them from the benefits that come from being a part of this union. And one of those is an absence of accountability. The judge in the uh, monitoring the 
consent decree said so. He said the previous contract that spanned from 2018 to 2020 when the consent decree was in place uh, made it too easy to reinstate officers who commit misconduct. And it disregarded literal city ordinances designed to promote police accountability. And so you get painted with a broad brush because you enjoy the same benefits and because a judge who's monitoring this has said there are unfair lanes of uh, failure to hold these people accountable. Yeah. And a new contract is being negotiated. So lots to learn about uh, whether and how uh, Seattle police culture is changing. And we'll talk about Tacoma and, and others. I want it before we take a break. Here we are talking about law enforcement. Last weekend, I-5 got shut down for hour, almost five hours by this protest against the Israeli strikes in Gaza. A group of cars slowed down and stopped on a northbound I-5, blocked all the lanes near Pine Street. Protesters walked onto the freeway through a cut in the fence, uh, handed out flyers to drivers saying, essentially, sorry for the inconvenience. We wouldn't do this if it weren't a matter of life or death for thousands or millions of people. Some of the protesters chained their arms together inside plastic piping, so it's dangerous to just cut through that, of course. The state patrol had trouble getting enough officers there, and protesters left before they could be arrested. They left behind their empty cars in many cases, which took a long time to clear. So what is, um, uh, Dyer, what do you think is the lesson from this uh, protest where we may get arrests we may see arrests i if i was to make a dire prediction i i would say that there are arrests coming um washington state patrol has, has come out in the wake of all this saying that you know we didn't we arrested eight people at the actual event there's no room at the jail uh but we are investigating multiple organizers of right. the action and this is similar to a lot of the protests that came out of 2020 you didn't see a lot of action he didn't see a lot of arrest type action like this at those events. But later on, that's when the press releases started coming that so and so was arrested and charged with, you know, X charge and so forth. Um, so I, with this one, it's almost like uh, I hate to tell this to listeners, but it's almost like a kind of a wait and see situation. I don't I don't think this is going to stay isolated to the I-5 incident or even the University Bridge incident where traffic was also blocked. Mm -hmm. uh, we're probably going to see a few things coming down the road here. Well, I mean, it shouldn't have surprised the state patrol that there was a potential for a massive and disruptive protest. I mean, we've been seeing it's, it's happening kind of globally ever since this began. And protests have been blocking I-5 through Seattle since the Vietnam War. So, OK, they were surprised. But. I want to actually compliment the Washington State Patrol. I think that uh, we talk about police accountability, and it, it starts with little things. One of those things is to do an after-action report like this that is so self-critical. It talks about the things that they missed. It talks about you know how, how this kind of flew under their radar, and they got surprised by it. Nonetheless, if we look at how this protest went and how it ended, uh, this pretty successful handling by the Washington State Patrol in the sense that there was not violence against protesters. And uh, even though the Seattle PD, which has its own history of social media treachery and fibbing, kind of got it wrong and said there had been a dispersal order when there had not, mm -hmm. uh, the protesters sort of heeded that. They kind of got out of the way. And, you know, I, I think that the criticisms for Washington State Patrol should kind of be tempered on this one because they are the ones who told us what they did wrong here. This was an open act of accountability and transparency on their part. And 
in the end, uh, this could have gone a whole lot worse. We've seen people die as recently as 2020 during protests on the highway. And uh, everybody went home safe that night. The officers did. The protesters did. And I think for those reasons, uh, we should probably be applauding the state patrol for this after action report. Not all of our listeners are applauding, as you might uh, guess. We asked uh, our listeners about this, and uh, Chelsea in Ravenna says it's illegal for any pedestrian to be on the highway. Police should have evacuated them immediately and or arrested them. Protesters are supposed to be safe for everyone involved. That was not a safe location for a protest. Travis in Green Lake says, I wholeheartedly support the protesters and their mission, but blocking the city's primary traffic route for hours can do a lot more than just annoy drivers. It could potentially endanger lives and safety in the city by blocking ambulances or parents on their way to pick up their children. Nathan said water cannons and water in general keep soaking them for hours. I've seen this used in other countries. Water's not generally lethal. It isn't warm out there. At some point, they'll give up. But also, all this unrest is entirely pointless, and the energies could be used to help solve real issues in our region. The person hours wasted here could have built many homes, cleaned many parks, cooked many meals, planted many trees. On the other hand, we heard from Sam, who said disruption of ordinary life is an effective and time-honored tool of calling attention to the injustices being protested. It's protected by law. Police should protect protesters from motorists and otherwise leave them alone. And finally, Ryan said it would have been nice if law enforcement joined the protest to show their outrage over the U.S. government's financial and military support of a regime engaged in genocide. A sampling of some of the uh, reaction from our listeners. Any reaction from panelists? Just that the protests will continue because clearly this is an unsettled question. And, you know, I think you read a really great series of responses there because we were able to hear things such as uh, why people don't care about Gaza or why, you know, or what people's perspectives are. And some people are just more concerned about what's happening in their own lives here closer to home. And it's a tough one to get people's attention about, especially this far removed from it geographically. And I think that that's perhaps why we've seen such audacious um, protests, not just here, but a lot of places. And I don't know that it's winning over hearts and minds by stopping people from getting across New York City or, or Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle, but it's certainly getting attention. Well, let's pause there. By the way, uh, you can join. You can be one of those folks who answers, you know, our, our question, who who gives your opinion. You can join KOW's Community Feedback Club by texting the word club. And here's the phone number you'll, te- you'll text to. It's area code, well, 206-926-9955. Again, text club to 206-926-9955. We'll take a break and come back with more stories that happen this week on Week in Review. We have been catching you up on the week here on KUOW's Week in Review with KUOW's online editor and producer, Dyer Oxley, and our police and courts reporter, Amy Radel, and Seattle Times senior investigative reporter, Patrick Malone. I'm Bill Radke. We've got just a few minutes to let you know some other stuff that happened this weekend. So uh, you had uh, our high temperature today expected around 21 degrees with a low tonight of 11 in Seattle, it's going to be a sub-freezing weekend. Uh, for places to get out of the cold, people can call the info line 211. You can also call shelters and find out what they want the public to donate. Uh, more than 70 people have applied to be a city council member, that vacant citywide seat, because the incumbent won election to the county council. So city council will take public comment and choose that new member in about 11 days. Then there's a special election in November and then a regular election next year. 
Uh, Seattle's mayor, by the way, I'm just doing a rundown. If anyone has any reaction to any of this stuff, feel free to jump in. Um, uh, Seattle's mayor wants to add more dense housing to the Fort Lawton site near Discovery Park in Magnolia. Uh, Bruce Harrell wants up to 500 units there, more than double the city's current plan. Some neighborhood critics would like that site to be parkland. Uh, Amazon is laying off several hundred more people, this time in its Prime Video and MGM Studios unit. Meanwhile, Bloomberg News reports the live streaming site Twitch, which Amazon owns, is poised to cut 35% of its staff. Amazon announced uh, thousands of layoffs in the last year. Oh, and Prime Video users will start seeing ads on movies and TV shows beginning later this month, unless you pay another I'll give you a reaction to that one, Yes, Dyer. Uh, for all of us uh, nerds out there that have been streaming for for all for years now, this was kind of an inevitable move uh, on an industry level. It's not just Amazon, um, but I think it's also Netflix and other places that we're going to see. Things are ramped up during pandemic shutdowns, and uh, a lot more hiring was done to support this increased online activity that everybody was doing while we were doing our duty sitting on our couches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the world we live in anymore. And so there has been... Some speculation that uh, layoffs like this were going to happen, particularly in the streaming realm of things. Right. You think so? You think that's related to um, to, to, to to that change to the coming out of the pandemic? I think habits have changed. We're not pre-pandemic yet. I don't think folks are flooding back into the movie theaters, but we're not really in those shutdown periods yet. I mean, maybe people are just hitting the trail more, but they're they're probably not getting online as much as they were before. And people watching Prime Video are going to start seeing ads to do that. I guess you're not you're sitting on your couch doing your duty does not make you an essential worker. <laughs> so you have to pay a little extra to be ad free. A couple other notes in sports: the Seahawks head coach, uh, we found out Pete Carroll is leaving that job. He and the team this week called that an amicable agreement. Carroll will stay on as an advisor to the team and chief gum chewer to the uh, Seahawks. The um, we are waiting to hear about what happens to the Husky football head coach. There is a job vacancy in Alabama where their coach announced he's leaving. And so Kalen DeBoer, who had this you know wonderful, almost undefeated season, um, is said to be, rumored to be, ESPN it says it's a matter of time, that they're negotiating, they're working out the, uh, the, the contract deal, but that uh, the Husky head coach looks uh, headed to Alabama. Tacoma News Tribune reported just moments ago huh. that uh, D- that DeBoer has informed the University of Washington that he's leaving. Oh, okay. That's Tacoma oh. News Tribune. Thanks, TNT and KUOW. And uh, thank you, Patrick. Um, yeah, any reaction to that? You know, the Huskies top of the just about top of the heap. Yes, Dyer. Just a quick clarification there. So that's two Seattle coaches, football coaches, that we are now vacant at this point. Correct. Just okay, about to wow. be, yeah. Are you That's interested? A big loss. City council vacancy and now two football coaches. <laughs> I'm sure there will be at least 74 qualified applicants. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. And the Huskies will lose a bunch of players, too, to the uh, NFL draft. Uh, one more sports note. Seattle Reign soccer team's getting that name back. The team goes, got bought by a French outfit, and the name changed to O.L. Reign, and they've been sold again to the Sounders and a private equity group. So no O.L., just Seattle Reign FC. What did O.L. stand for? Uh, Olympique Lyonnais or something. It's a... A French. I realized when I saw this headline that I never knew. So, yeah. well, I think we could complete the bingo card if only by 5 p.m. they will announce the NBA is bringing back 
basketball to the Seattle area because I can't think of a week in the short time I've lived here the last four years that uh, so many historic things happen on the sports front. Yeah. And and let's talk about the political front before we before we back out of here, because the state Democratic Party submitted three candidates for the primary in March. Joseph R. Biden, Jr., Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson. And the state Republican Party submitted five names. Chris Christie, who has since dropped out, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Donald Trump. Dyer, a group of Kitsap County voters, is suing to remove Trump from that ballot. That's correct. I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I po- as possibly can for this. Uh, there's kind of a two-pronged approach we got going on here. Eight voters, mostly in the Kitsap and Thurston County areas, have filed a challenge to Trump being on the ballot based on that 14th Amendment argument that you've been hearing a lot about in Colorado and Maine and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, uh, we have Representative Christine Reeves. Uh, HB 2150 is her bill. And uh, that is basically she has admitted this is basically a targeted approach to get Trump off of the ballot later on this year. This is in the it state again also uses <laughs> 14th Amendment argument. Right. And, and I think Patrick and Amy, you both said that could be a, a kind of a dicey attempt at the state legislative level to try to get Trump off this ballot. And I noticed in the in the legislation that it says that if he were still on the ballot and he did get votes, but then, you know, he had been deemed ineligible, then the number of votes, it sounds like, if I read it correctly, would not be disclosed to the public. And I feel like that would just be so explosive because mm. then people would say, you know, you're, you know, the state's hiding things. I, I guess I, I hope that there's like a better, you know, really transparent approach that we can that that this goes through. Yeah, yeah, yeah I could already very... see the conspiracy spreading on TikTok after that. Yes. Right. There are very alarming you know, aspects to this proposed legislation. Like, for instance, uh, one provision would grant state legislators authority to disqualify a candidate from a ballot. And that just has some inherent conflicts of interest, because even if it's done for the right reasons, it leaves room for the perception that doing so could be for political or partisan reasons. And yeah. another reason to erode trust in democracy. We will watch that play out. We're just about out of time here. Anything we should smile about heading into the weekend? Um, I was impressed at the heroic survival story of the iPhone that fell from the plane. Yes. Uh, and also, I'm excited to go back to the formerly Cinerama Theater uh, this weekend. I haven't been back in those doors yet, and I was uh-huh. so happy to see them reopen. Yeah, my kids saw Wonka there a couple of days ago. Anything, Dyer, anything? Amy, I am campaigning to call it Cipherama from now on. Yes, just so that that's so much better. Yes. They were pumping yes. so much chocolate aroma outside <laughs> of the, the Wonka showing that it could be Snifferama as well and still qualify. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll just say then that we saw a version of the Billy Frank Jr. sculpture that's going to go in the U.S. Capitol building next year. Billy Frank Jr. fought for tribal fishing rights, got himself arrested with Marlon Brando for illegal fishing. And uh, there's a smaller uh, version is uh, now at the state capitol in Olympia. I think that um, uh, the sculptor High Wing High Ying Wu really captured uh, captured Billy Frank well. I'm smiling about the snow just because it felt oh. you know I got to go take a little walk in it last night and felt it on my cheeks. Now I'm ready for it to go again, and uh, it also really tamped down traffic coming from West Seattle today. It was the easiest drive because everybody is home under a blanket. Yes, home under a blanket. I hope people can uh, can warm up very soon, too. Uh, we've got Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone there with KUOW's police and courts reporter Amy Radel and KUOW online editor and producer Dyer Oxley. Thanks, everyone, for being on our show this week. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, producer Kevin Kniestet and Bernard Ouellette running the board. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Bill Radke. We'll see you next week. 
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.